The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled and exciting part two episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. And part two, this is still Ben. So <laughs> did you forget you were still Ben? You had to remind yourself? No, it's part two. So, I mean, you know, I was, I was Ben on part one. I'm still Ben on part two. So, Well, thank God they have tuned into this podcast again and didn't assume somebody else took over for you. That would be funny one time, though, and just act like it was <laughs> like on The Office whenever they had the Asian guy play Jim, like as one of the pranks. That would be like, like, no, this is it, it's been this guy the entire time. What are you talking about? Yes. Just have him do the entire episode in like Cantonese Chinese or something like that. And just like, <laughs> what? <laughs> What's going on? And everyone's going to be like, um, I couldn't understand one thing about migraine headaches. And we're like, well, I guess you better learn Chinese. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I was there. So. Man, we uh, kind of cut off our conversation with Eric because uh, we went long because it's what we tend to do with Eric because uh, we talk about a lot of stuff. I don't know. I mean, it just the conversation just flows real well with him, I guess, is the, the, the more appropriate way to put that. Yes, and you know all those times he kept asking me about my mother. I just didn't understand where we were going. But uh, well, yeah, no. Every time we have Eric on the show, I mean, we, and we have several guests. I think we have a good conversation with all our guests. But yes, Eric in particular is one of the guests that any episode is bound to probably be a two parter. So yeah, kind of Eric and Jeff are are, are uh, long winded guests. How about that? That's. Yeah, and I'm sure Pollyanna's going to want to stab you now. So we we have several that yeah. they they like being on the show, and we like having them here. So, but no, uh, we got a lot of good feedback on the first part of this episode where we started talking kind of about PTSD, depression, anxiety from COVID nineteen. Uh, you know, both on a patient standpoint, but then we really kind of wanted to hone in on providers and how we're going to deal with this and everything that we're going through moving forward and. So, I mean, the conversation just kind of uh, continues from obviously where where we stopped. That's generally how that works. Yeah. I know, it, you know, it was rolling around my brain and it sounded good. And then as it was coming out, it did not. Well, when I say words, they come out of my mouth. So words are hard. But no, listening to some of the uh, editing process that went through on this one, this was a very deep conversation. Uh, the second part was, I mean, we really get into talking about depression and lots of like compartmentalization that, that we do as ER uh, nurses and now as providers and 
just kind of really hit on a, a bunch of good stuff in this in this portion of the episode. And honestly, I think both of these episodes with Eric are those ones that I think everybody can get something from, whether they have some kind of direct interest in this. Just listening to it and digesting a lot of what Eric is saying can really bring about some meaning to just about anything if you if you really want to get down to it. But in particular, what we're all going through, like this is something that is historical, like the entire world is suffering at the same time. Yeah. And some of the things that we cover, you know, we can use now. And it's something that you can continue to look back to throughout not only this pandemic, but everything to follow. Well, at the end of this episode, I kind of allude to a patient that I had, and that was really the, why I wanted to have this episode was because I didn't want healthcare people or just people in general to be sitting somewhere 50 years from now saying, man, 2020 just screwed me up and I've been holding on to it ever since we talk about debriefings and how important that is. And I mean, actually in the coming weeks, I think we're going to uh, get the opportunity to visit with a travel nurse who was actually uh, at New York city and hearing some of her stories, I think is going to be good. And hopefully maybe in some way it can be some sort of a debriefing for her as well. And like you said, with just about any type of traumatic event or just mental health in general far too often people are reluctant to come forwards or get treatment or talk to somebody even and the importance that eric talked about of let's be proactive and like you said we don't want somebody i don't care if it's two months or two years from now let alone 20 where they could have got help sooner we were just hoping that somebody gets something from these episodes and and maybe we can prevent somebody from suffering when they don't need to yeah i mean we generally don't get real somber on this show or we try not to but i mean it really is just a you know this is we we want to instill in people that you know what if you are hurting in relation to COVID 19 or anything else and some of the shit that you've seen and some of the shit that you've been through you are worth the help. You just need to get it. And whether that's reaching out to your primary provider, whether it's reaching out to mental health, a psychiatrist, whatever the case may be, reach out and get that help. Yeah. While we are specifically talking about COVID-19 in relation to it in this case, it certainly spans a much greater spectrum than just COVID-19. So keep all that in mind. You are not alone there is help. You just have to either a, let us help you or B seek it out. Tom, anything else you want to add before we throw to the rest of our, uh, our conversation with Eric? Mm, nope. I'm good. <laughs> All right. Well, Hey, on that note, I hope you really do enjoy the rest of the conversation. Again, it is kind of a more of a, a, a somber, more serious tone conversation. This half of the conversation, but it's something that definitely needed to be said. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, this is an episode that I really wish uh, between even if we were to cut it into all of just the Eric interview uh, and, and cut out the stories and cut out the endings and stuff. This is an episode that I would really like 
to scream from the mountaintops just because it is something that everybody's going through, like Tom said, and it's we need to be able to deal with it. Couldn't have said it better. <clears throat> All right. Enjoy the rest of the episode. What bothers me, I guess, the most in this COVID-19 situation is, again, going back to it's a priority one trauma patient. I can try and fix this. I may lose the battle, but I can try and fix this. And it seems to be obviously there is a target population that is more at risk. But then we have those cases of healthy 35 year olds and there's nothing we can do. And that part, that's the part of my brain that can't facilitate this. That's going, wait a second. If he had a punctured lung, we would just put a chest tube. You know, if he had this, we would do that. And I'm looking at this guy and he's going down the tubes and there's literally nothing I can do about it. Tom, that's what scares. That's the part that makes me go, what the hell is supposed to happen next? Tom, when you're when you listen back on this, this statement, these statements that you just made for an exercise, I want you to sub out COVID-19 for the word depression. Because. Some of the same thoughts that you're describing as an ER trauma nurse, ICU nurse, the things that you can see and that you can touch and that you can feel and you can do a difference in what you do in that moment, that 30 seconds you put a chest tube in, you can see an improvement. Man, some days that's what it feels like when I'm treating depression because my antidepressants aren't going to work for two to four weeks. I don't see depression. I can evaluate for it. I can evaluate for anxiety. I can't touch depression. And sometimes there's that 35-year-old otherwise healthy guy who loses his battle to depression. And I, I think that's, I think if, I don't know what, why that hit me just now as you're describing it, but man, that's the way that I feel some days. And I think it's, it's difficult because when we look at COVID as this invisible, silent thing that's killing people, so is depression. I was just saying a lot of what you do, and I don't want to, when I say it's invisible, I don't mean that it's made up, but I mean, a lot of what you deal with from a mental health standpoint, you can't see, you can't see depression. You can't see anxiety. You can see symptoms of, but you can't see that. So, I mean, from a mental health standpoint, fighting something invisible is something that you have trained to do. Sure. I think that's where the push comes from. And, and when, you know, so I, as an administrator, I sit in with a bunch of other subspecialties, of course, and we're, we're getting ready for COVID. And one of the struggles is for, for me, it was, this is just another thing. You know, this is an incredibly crazy pandemic and how, how it's going to impact my patients. They're still going to be depressed. They're still going to be anxious. Those symptoms are still going to be the thing. This is another triggering event. And as we can do everything that we can do to socially distance and we can do all of the right stuff, we still have those cases that, man, we don't know how they got it. And same thing for depression sometimes, you know? Huh. Well, I'd like to think the reason you thought about that is because I'm pretty amazing at what I do. Oh, so without a doubt. So, so there's that. I, I'm glad you said it, though. Not the amazing part. The part where substitute... <laughs> substitute <laughs> substitute depression because honestly though if we all step back we're seeing a common reoccurrence we're, we're really good with the things that we can see and touch we're really bad with the things we can't yeah. absolutely and honestly i 
I was just thinking when you were saying sub in depression, I was like, I think there's a bunch of things I could sub in because from the family medicine point of view, for me, at least. And again, I'm still relatively new, so I'm going to defer to Ben to fill in some gaps here in a second. But there's a lot of stuff that we treat. And I don't mean the physical stuff like rashes. You know, there's something I'm going to be like, okay, well, we're going to start you on this medicine and I'll see you in three months. And sure. there you go. Like, so again, I, I'm not saying it's as definitive as depression because that's truly a ghost. Like there is no physical man. Well, there are physical manifestations, but there, there isn't a x-ray sure. that's going to show you depression. And we could see some of the physical improvements with like, let's say diabetes. But at the same time, I, I understand that. And that's one of the things I don't want to say has depressed me, but has definitely been maybe the biggest adjustment going from staff nurse hands-on in an ER to a provider, which is now I'm like, okay, here's Matt Foreman. Um, we'll see you. And sure. you know, let, let's see what happens next. I don't get that instant gratification or feedback that I have done the right thing. And that has been a huge obstacle and so I hope if there are other PAs, nurse practitioners, whoever's listening out there, you understand you're, you're not alone in feeling that way. And if you're a patient listening to this, this is what we're dealing with. Like when we treat you, we this is the side that we're seeing. So, hmm, damn, this is getting deep. I mean, I don't mean that bad, but I mean, like, I mean, because well, I, mean, I am pretty good. So I'm just <laughs> I mean. I mean, Eric made a, a hell of a point by saying, you know, sublimate depression and for COVID-19 because, yeah, like, I mean, in the scenarios that Tom has given, you know, you can do everything right and you still lose them. And you're like, well, shit. And then, Tom, you made a great point, too, because it's like diabetes. I mean, yes, we can see glucose, things of that nature. But again, hypertension, diabetes, a lot of hyperlipidemia, for fuck's sakes. Like, I mean, nobody sees hyperlipidemia because it... it and that's a you know such a hard one because patients don't feel any different. So I mean, it's just it's really odd to try to. I'm sitting here just kind of wrapping my mind around a lot of that. that yeah, it's a lot of what we do is just kind of we don't get that instant gratification where you do with like a cellulitis, or if you come in with an ingrown toenail and I pop your toenail off, like I fixed yeah. it. Well, or even <laughs> when you were bedside. Oh, this guy is hurting. I put in an IV and I give him medicine. He's not hurting. Like, there you go. Bam. It's it's done. I fixed it. But now we're dealing with wow. huh. the ethereal. Like, am I really doing something? <laughs> am I actually making a difference? I know. I'm pretty deep, Ben. You and Eric didn't know. I have led us down a rabbit hole, my friend. This is this is his cognitive restructuring ability. Oh, here we go. Full, fully through. Here's the problem is Eric's unlocking shit in my brain. And I'm like, oh, like I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> oh, great. I'm going to have to pay him $24.99 for a therapy session when we're done with this. That's right. I'll, I'll work up an e-visit for you. There you go. So Tom kind of touched on it earlier. And I wanted to get your take on this, Eric. Social media and particularly with all the conspiracy theories and bullshit and stuff that you see out there on a grand scale and there are times as a healthcare person, you feel like, why do I try? Like, why do I even try to reason with people when the evidence is so clearly wrong? But I mean, how, I mean, from a mental health standpoint, I mean, what, how can we deal with dealing with social media bullshit easier? 
Oh, or is man. there? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think that's the, I think that's the absolute challenge because I don't think there is a way. Uh, as as long as freedom of speech is protected, as long as there's special interest groups, they're going to keep propelling whatever narrative they want to propel out there. And unfortunately, there's political motivation on both sides of the aisle. The yeah. silent majority, the silent moderates, just I guess aren't vocal enough. And and I guess that's the challenge is is for for the quiet people in the room to say something. I'll, I'll never forget. I was. I was at a case management meeting with a different organization. So it wasn't community health center. Uh, I was, I had the opportunity to go speak at a, a local mental health center, their case management staff. And everybody's talking, everybody's talking, everybody's talking, you know, emotions are high at times, emotions aren't on others. And, and finally we get to the very end of everything. And there's this one guy who hasn't said anything the entire time. And he finally said something and everybody shut up. And it was incredible. And maybe for all the people who just take in information and try to form their most educated opinion about something, share it and understand it might not be right, but also be okay with that. And and I think if we apply that to social media, man, if we could just get rid of Facebook, I think that'd be phenomenal. If we could get rid of Twitter, right. Instagram, all that other stuff, I think it'd be great. One of the, one of the service videos I did for Southeastern Kansas was, Hey, go to KDHE.com and actually look at the statistics inform your own opinion hmm. well and i i think it would be important and i was thinking about this today because i was listening to one of our other episodes about the being okay with being things wrong when you said something two months ago and this is to the people in general it wasn't wrong then like you could look back now and go wow we we might we might not have been wrong but maybe we missed the mark a little bit we weren't wrong or being malicious when you you know, Ben and I, like I listened to our episode. I was like, there were some things I, I don't think we were wrong about stuff, but at the same time, I was like, I can see now in hindsight that perhaps that could have came out differently, or there was a better way to put that or etc. And I'm okay with that because if somebody says, well, you said, I'm like, yeah. And guess what? On April you know, 17th, that was the most up-to-date true information we had. I think attacking people for something that was right at the time, but is wrong now seems to be like one of the things that drives me most nuts about Facebook. And I don't know how to tell people you, you have to do your best because people try to take any mistake I don't know what it is about people that they have to attack somebody else all the time. Like that's, you know, I was going to say, sorry, Tom, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, but, no, no, please it go. That's you know, I, with, I, with, that, that was the end of my statement. I don't know what it is. What is wrong with these people? I think the, the silent moderates, you know, that have opinions. We play by one playbook and those on both sides of the spectrum play by a different playbook. And that playbook is I'm going to vehemently attack whoever has an opinion different than mine. And I'm going to force them to see it my way. Whereas us normal people, <laughs> we don't have that in our DNA to say, oh, well, because I disagree with you, I'm going to attack you and call you all kinds of names and, and try to forced you to see it my way. And so I think that's where a lot of the frustration comes from is when you do voice an opinion that is more of the silent and not on one of the extremes, it's 
I mean, it's just attacked. Oh, sure. I, you also, know, oh, go ahead, Tom. I, I was just gonna say also. And not that it wasn't like this before, but maybe I'm just noticing it even more with COVID-19 is if I say anything and I don't mean just me, like, let's say it's Ben, it's Eric, it's me, it's whoever. If you say anything that does not completely conform to what that person wants to say, hear or feel, then you are an asshole that is out to get them. And I'm like, no. I was just giving a different perspective. What is it? What happens or what process is there that makes a person go? If somebody doesn't a hundred percent agree with me, then not only are they wrong, but I must attack them to protect my thought process. Because there's a lot of times where I'm just giving a perspective or I'm reading where somebody else is giving their personal perspective. It wasn't rude. It wasn't malicious. It was just not in line with that thread. And suddenly they are swarmed like piranha, like piranhas on a cow in a river, man. People will go after these people. And I don't. Is that a group mentality? Like, what is it that makes people do this? So an interesting thing that I read a book by by Dr. Ruby Payne, it was targeted for administrators and educators. And one of the way that she conceptualized it was over, you know, what is poverty? And I know this is a completely uh, kind of off topic, but Tom, I think it answers your question. She talked about poverty as a lack of resources, not a lack of finances, not a lack of social supports, not a lack of whatever else. It was a lack of resources, which uh, could be any or all of the above. Anything that you could think would be helpful for someone could be considered a resource. And when we lack resources, one of the things that Dr. Payne kind of referenced is that thought polarity. Thought polarity is a side effect of lack of resources. And so if we lose a lack of resource such as leadership or guidance or a role model, we could start to believe things that are opinions as facts and fall in this trap of thought polarity. And I think as a nation, that's what we've done. And so if you guys have the opportunity or any, anybody's interested out there, this is, I have no financial affiliations with uh, Dr. Ruby Payne, but man, you should check out the book because it's insightful. And it really got me thinking because when everybody thinks of poverty, you think of that uh, poor finances and they're living in a inner city area or being in a rural area or whatever, but it's much more than just that. And I thought it was really neat to think about what all could be considered a resource in someone's life to help them. So tell tell us the author and the name of the book one more time. Ruby Payne is the author, and I can't find the book at this moment. Uh, but Dr. Ruby Payne is the author. She's written several versions of the same book, and it, and it really focuses on, and maybe I can get you guys a link to include with this podcast. It really sure. focuses on answering the question of, of what is poverty? And really challenging some of the stereotypes of what we thought poverty might be. And what's really cool about that also is it it can kind of give a roadmap to how we can help people escape poverty and not fall into it. And, and I think it's incredibly helpful and, and it, it means a lot to me uh, with uh, the people that I work with. Huh. Several books, um, a framework for understanding poverty, emotional poverty. There's a, a- That's the one framework for understanding poverty. 
Oh, she has a revised version that I'm reading. There's two versions. Hmm. Okay. All right. We'll have to. We can drop a link and uh, on Amazon to that. Uh, you know, in our show notes, and make sure it goes through our <laughs> our Amazon affiliate link. So, Eric, kind of getting back into uh, PTSD, then. So, even if we don't necessarily see a, an increased prevalence of it, what are some go-to medications and family practice that we can use um, if we have patients with PTSD? Or is that something that, at this point, you know, maybe we should get a psychiatrist involved and, and handle that aspect of it? Or kind of what what are you what are your thoughts on some of that? Yeah, no, I think it's a, a completely appropriate for family practice folks to be treating PTSD. As complex as a disease as it is, the treatment for it from a pharmacotherapy standpoint is pretty simple. An SSRI. Zoloft has been shown to be effective for uh, PTSD. Some of our SNRIs theoretically are helpful, even though they may not be FDA approved. When we think about some emotional reactivity, or we think about some other symptomology, maybe unstable emotions, um, irritability, you know, you could look at augmenting with an anticonvulsant or antipsychotic agent. A lot of that's been published in literature. Of course, it's as you guys feel comfortable, but I would definitely not deter you all from initiating an SSRI or an SNRI medication. Common medicines that are helpful for sleep, if, if it's someone reporting significant nightmares, uh, as I've mentioned earlier, we can utilize prozosin, one milligram at bedtime. There was a really good study that was published at a Harvard uh, that actually talked about dose escalation of prozosin uh, for the treatment of PTSD around the clock. So the negative part is, of course, prozosin's half-life is approximately three to four hours. And so it's not going to provide a lot of hypervigilance or flashback management during the daytime without additional dosing. Trazodone has limited efficacy for the reduction of nightmares. Sometimes it makes it worse. Adorax has been studied. I don't think there was a significant difference between the efficacy between Adorax and Trazodone. Uh, but no, I think you guys treat it. I think it's super important to refer for therapy. So just a quick, though, note. So Trazodone may make it worse, but Adorax won't make it worse. Like it may not work any better, but at least there would be a limitation on the side effect, possibly. Yeah, correct. So serotonergic agents have the potential of worsening or increased vivid dreaming. And so if we have someone who's predisposed to nightmares and we increase the vividness of their dreaming, then that's a problem. Also, yeah. melatonin is a very uh, sneaky culprit for worsening nightmares. Melatonin actually can kind of activate some of the dream centers within our brain and increase the vividness of our dreams. So all things to consider when we're looking at stabilizing sleep. I actually read about uh, people that had been combining Benadryl and melatonin to help with sleep, that it was actually increasing the vividness of dreams and making that worse. So if they were trying to sleep through those problems, they may in fact be making them much worse is what the study was saying. Absolutely. And you get stuck there. Oh, oh wow. So what okay. would you consider a quote unquote good amount of sleep for oh. a, a, a PTSD or, or depression or anxiety patient? So what really helps me is to kind of go back, as we talked before, initial versus terminal insomnia. Uh, if they're waking up in the middle of the night, the question is why? So are they having nightmares? Do they have sleep apnea? Or do they have to wake up to go pee? So are these actual medical issues that are causing terminal insomnia or is it nightmares? It's not uncommon, Ben, for some of my patients to be like, hey, dude, I don't have any nightmares that I remember, but I wake up like and I'm having a panic attack. 
<laughs> so you probably are having a nightmare. You just don't remember the damn thing. So at those periods of time, whether trauma exposure or a history of trauma exposure, I'll go ahead and treat that as well. When we think about initial insomnia, realistically, anxiety is a primary driver for that. Of course, you'd want to rule out mania and, and some depression as well, but anxiety can be a primary driver for that. And then really any of the medications that we've mentioned thus far would be helpful. Hmm. So obviously you're, you're a big proponent for therapy, whether it be debriefings or talk therapy, whatever the case may be. So how do you handle that resistant patient? Because we, I think in family practice, we all see those where it's like they come in and they want to come to see us for medication management of mental health. But then when we mention, Hey, you know, you should probably get in and talk to someone and do some talk therapy. They're like, no, no, I don't, I don't do that. Yeah, I mean, so that's a, I get the same thing, Ben. There's this idea that psychiatry and psychology people are weird. I have no <laughs> idea where that comes from. You know, Sigmund yeah, yeah. Freud was a stand-up guy. He didn't come up with any weird ideas. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that was another reason why I went into psychiatry, because I'd like to think semi-normal people do it. No offense to anybody out there. So, no, I, I think we uh, have a realistic exp- uh, realistic conversation with our patient and say, hey, medication is a small part of treatment for this. And if that's all you want, fine. I'll prescribe you an antidepressant to help, but you won't ever re- achieve recovery. And that's a decision that they have to make. Compare it to that patient who's morbidly obese, has medical comorbidities, you've got them on Topamax and Wellbutrin, or you've got them on Phenermine, or you got them on whatever it is that you guys cook up to help with weight loss, but they won't exercise. Do you just keep cranking the Phenermine until their heart explodes? No. Stop, At least I, I hope like not. 900 milligrams of Phenermine. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so... And and as silly as that sounds, because you guys deal with that every day, it's the same thing with psychiatry is, hey, I can only recommend something for you. It's your decision on whether or not you do it. But this is what evidence-based treatment is for this. And I'm not going to potentially expose you to a negative consequence of medication if you're unwilling to participate with the other half or two-thirds of treatment. Well. I have this regularly, especially with brand new patients that are establishing with me. I, I give them the old, I will work as hard as you do. I, you know, I, I feel like it's your body. You make the ultimate choices. But if I recommend a treatment plan and you just refuse to follow along with it, uh, at some point, you're going to have to bear the personal responsibility for the fact it's not working. Like, I'm not going to let you sit in my office and tell me we're not doing anything when you won't take the medicine. And it it would go with the same way with the therapy. I, I guess at some point I'd be like, no, I'm not going to continue down this road. You are not trying to complete the treatment. I, I mean, I've never been in the therapy shoes, so I don't know how I would handle that exactly. But I have had this conversation more than once with patients like, no we're not going to keep beating our heads against the wall on this. So that's, that's just how I've handled it. Yeah. I I think it's realistic expectations for treatment and realistic expectations for outcomes. And antidepressant is not going to solve your problems. If you feel like that's the key, you're wrong. And as your medical provider, it's my job to tell you that. And I'm going to help you cognitively restructure this because that's what I do because I'm Tom. <laughs> sure. So. In, in the behavioral health world, there's this magical thing called motivational interviewing, which is like the end-all be-all for making patients do stuff they don't want to do. 
I'm on the fence about it, but yeah, sure. You can, there's another term for you, Tom, motivational yeah. interviewing. Man, I am going to go into work tomorrow and they're going to be like, what are you doing? I'm like, motivationally interviewing. What the fuck have you been doing? And they're like, what? Like, it's going to mind blow tomorrow. So, uh, yeah, I just hope the girls are ready. So, <laughs> Eric, I have one last question for you and then we'll let you go because I know we've kept you for uh, quite a while. Uh, well, he's yeah. got to get those banker hours of sleep in there. So, <laughs> yeah, yo, and number of number of hours of sleep in that's really not a real thing. My cutoff is six. If you're getting less than six hours of sleep and you're symptomatic, it's a problem. If you have lack of energy, concentration sucks. You're in a pissy mood. That's not enough sleep. If you're sleeping twelve hours and it's impacting other areas of your life then that's probably too much. It's really based on the patient and what their psychosocial demands are. It's almost like you think that each patient is different and that (laughs) treat each patient individually, as opposed to just like a cookie cutter. I'm sensing that. What? Is that (laughs) a thing? (laughs) Um, I prefer the cookie cutter. so. (laughs) So in talking about PTSD, I know, one of the things that I've heard about, and I w- would be kind of interested in if you have any experience with it, or and if not, then we'll just edit this part out. Is it EMDR? Oh, I know I like where this is going. Yeah, uh, EMDR. Oh, that's not what I thought you were going to ask. Go on. Well, I, I've heard of EMDR. So I, I want to hear Eric's. Yeah, so for, for all of those who don't know, it's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. That's what EMDR stands for. It, it's a really cool idea, right? So going to Sigmund Freud, uh, everybody can tune out or listen up depending on your personal thoughts. His idea behind psychoanalytic therapy and therapy in general is to be able to bring the pre-conscious and the unconscious state of your mind where all this wild shit lives to the conscious area of our brain to where we can actually analytically think about it and process it. So for instance, let's think about nightmares. Nightmares happen when we sleep. That's a pre-conscious area of our brain. We are still semi-aware of what's going on. Daydreaming would be another one. Hypnosis would be one. A pre-conscious state of our brain. Pre-consciousness is where we put shit in a box and we lock it away. Okay. We forget about it. We don't think about it. We, uh, we, we realistically avoid it. And that's how some of us cope. But every once in a while, it'll come forward and then become problematic. So Sigmund Freud's idea was we're going to bring all that shit forward to where we can use our full brain, our higher executive functioning area of our brain, and we're going to address it. Hmm. Well, so one really cool thing about EMDR is the idea is physically we're going to occupy our consciousness. So I'm either going to be following a light or I'm going to feel beads in my hands that bounce back and forth. And I'm going to physically occupy my mind, consciously occupy my mind, and then the therapist is going to lead down the trauma history path. So part of our brain is focusing on this physical stimulus, while the other part of our brain is working through the trauma. Hmm. And I'm, of course, not EMDR certified, but speed in which this physical stimulus is coming through. Uh, contributes to stress and continue, uh, contributes to how quickly we're going to try to process through this. And so uh, it's really, it's really interesting. I had a, uh, I had a previous therapist that I worked with uh, and she thought that people could be cured uh, with one session 
of EMDR. Ooh, that sounds and, a little scary. Well, yeah, but you know, Very ambitious. Uh, yeah, a lot of trauma isn't just one thing. It's a complex woven whatever yeah. of just shit. Yeah. You know, and sometimes you have to address it layer by layer and that's what you can achieve. One of the one of the keys to note though is people just don't jump into EMDR. Like a lot of it is you have to be able to have some ability to process shit on your own. You have mm-hmm. to have some internal resiliency to be able to work through and not just completely lose your shit when you're triggered by this trauma. And so a lot of what EMDR therapy is, is actually building to that point of actually doing the EMDR is working on some of those coping skills prior to getting there. Which is probably, So you just don't fall apart. I say that's, it sounds like a really great thing because the whole thought of an EMDR one session curing everything, like you're opening a whole bunch of boxes and then you're going to be like, okay, it's been an hour. I think you're good now. And then you're left trying to process 9,000 open boxes of trauma and shit that you're like, how am I going to process? So I, I, I like the idea of let's build to build those strong coping mechanisms because we're going to open boxes and it's not going to be comfortable for you, but we need, you know, you need to have that, that coping mechanism in place prior to. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I think the, the challenge is for that one appointment thing is getting better. It's an epiphany. I think that's what you're relying on is that as someone goes through this trauma exposure, they have a, they have an epiphany to where they don't hold themselves responsible or they don't, they don't have that unrealistic guilt and thus their, their symptoms melt away. I think that's few and far in between. Hmm. One other thing, if you have any other interest is there's this uh, type of therapy called post-exposure therapy and it's for people who have been through a traumatic event, but it's, kind of barbaric at times uh it places more of a conscious effort to purposefully relive the experience um it can be triggered by smells it can be triggered by memories it can be yeah there's times where you actually talk into a recording and then you listen to it you describe it the the traumatic event as as detailed as you can and then you re-listen to it and the idea behind it is it it inoculates you with that stress you get it over and over and over and over again to where it no longer has as much power over you. Um, so, that's, so it's basically like immunotherapy for like allergies, but for stress and trauma that uh, absolutely ooh, right. That sounds, I don't know. <laughs> well, see, I, I've heard of the EMDR and I thought that was cool. I totally, I honestly forgot about it Cause I thought, Eric, what is your thoughts on the use of like the studies with ketamine or PCP in the use of like PTSD? Yeah. So that's, that's incredibly interesting guys. And I could spend an entire session just talking over ketamine. It was one of my pet research things in private time. So I won't, I won't get into it super deep. I think the idea of it's still the same. I think the idea of it is, is to elicit a point where we're in our pre-conscious state Uh, We're still lucid enough to receive psychotherapy, receive instruction and be able to process information, Uh, but we're not so present that it's significantly traumatic. If we're able to do this with occupying part of our brain, like with EMDR or not being fully invested in in the re-triggering event of going through the trauma, we're able to process pieces of it and eventually process the entire trauma exposure itself. Huh. Interesting. 
which brought up one side question. Sorry. Sure. So I've heard there are studies out about like patients with like bipolar and things of that nature using like LSD or acid to cope with bipolar, but using it in a controlled environment and it showing promise. Have you heard any of that or? Yeah. So this is, this is kind of the can of worms. I promise I won't jump into it a whole bunch. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's okay. It, it, it all circles around and, and I'm not the expert in this so that you, there may be a better person that y'all can bring on, but it all circles around this idea of microdosing and its effects on NMDA receptors. And so bear with me. Well, I, I won't even, I won't even mm-hmm. get into that nomenclature, but so there was this dude out of Stanford and uh, this big hype. So ketamine's like the savior, right? Like, Hey, this patient's suicidal. We got to get him ketamine. It'll help him. We've got this robust research and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, so there was this dude, there was this dude out of Stanford who was like, Hey, wait a minute. Ketamine also works on the opioid receptor system. It's a Delta and it's a mu receptor agonist at the opioid receptor sites. And so why is nobody paying that any attention? And so he did a really interesting, he did a really interesting study of about 15 people and they were randomly uh, assigned and half of them received ketamine plus naltrexone and the other half received ketamine. Uh, And it was for the treatment of depression. And so of course the people who received straight up ketamine, they got better, their depression improved. So the people who received ketamine plus naltrexone, guess what happened? They didn't get better. And so what's interesting is if we think about the pharmacology between ketamine and naltrexone, utilizing naltrexone is eliminating the opioid factor associated with ketamine. And so we're becoming reliant on only the effects on NMDA, hmm. Interesting. which did nothing, right? Yeah. According to the study. Now it was a, it was a small overall volume, but it, it raises the question if, of, Hey, are we focusing on the wrong receptor system for ketamine? Should we really be focusing on the opioid receptor system, which thus could potentiate the opioid crisis, right? So Synovian came out with this drug. It it didn't end up meeting its final endpoints. Well, I think it met its final endpoints, but didn't meet safety criteria, which had buprenorphine, which is a partial agonist at mu opioid receptors, as Mm -hmm. part of it, as part of an antidepressant to target the opioid receptor plus serotonergic activity. And there's a a deeper can of worms I promise I won't get into due, due to time. But it's an interesting idea, isn't it, guys? It really is. Oh, absolutely. It's interesting. Huh. And that, I think, just goes to show that we just, there's so much that we still don't know, you know, about our brains and receptors and, and how our certain bodies process certain things versus other bodies. So that's very and, interesting. And genotype does not always predict phenotype. And that's one thing that we have to remember when we think about trauma. And we think about trauma to our clinicians and trauma to our uh, trauma to our patients. Genotype does not always predict phenotype. Hmm. Well, on on that note, um, if you like these episodes, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast. Our website's www.justsomepodcast.com. Email us if you like this, what you heard, or if you want to reach out to Tom, I, or Eric, and. Uh, well, of course, we can get you in contact with Eric if we need to, but admin at justsomepodcast.com. Tom, but on that note, uh, man, I, I feel like I'm going to need some therapy after this episode. So, 
Yeah, I'm gonna be hitting Eric up. Hey, buddy, <laughs> I got I got a, I got a box of hot pockets with your name on it. If you just uh, fix that childhood trauma, yep, you fly me out to where you're at, and we'll we'll make something happen. <laughs> there you go. There you go. But no, uh, I Eric, think, any? Oh, go on, Ben. No, no, I was just, just going to say I think that it really was an episode that we needed to address because you know I think over the the coming months and, and years we're certainly going to see. Uh, some, you know, aspects of, of mental health and dealing with COVID, both from a patient perspective and from a, a healthcare perspective. So I appreciate the hell out of Eric coming on and, and uh, you know, discussing all that and then even giving me a couple of uh, epiphany moments where I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, that's deep. I hadn't thought about that. So, And, and guys, a closing note, don't wait to treat it. So if you've got someone who's a high-risk individual who says, yeah, I'm doing fine, uh, man, r- recommend they talk to somebody anyways. If you've got someone who's coming in and they're symptomatic, treat them. If for whatever reason they're not responding to just a traditional treatment with an SSRI, man, refer them to psychiatry or if you feel comfortable, do some lit reviews on how we can utilize uh, anticonvulsants and antipsychotic medications to help benefit. Um, don't wait because the longer we wait for trauma, the worse this shit's going to get. Hmm. Dominating closing thoughts. Nope, nope. Eric covered it. <laughs> I I like all the new words I'm going to be using tomorrow. Motivational, Motivational interviewing, interviewing. Uh, cognitive uh, restructuring. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, one of the a patient that I seen in the in the clinic that this just kind of brought it all to a head for me was a gentleman. I think he was like in his seventies, maybe. Um, and even if he wasn't, I mean, I don't want to get too specific with it, but he was dealing with some PTSD related to like the Vietnam war and he was having some hallucinations that had just started within three months. And we're talking, this is some, you know, 50, 60 years later and kind of broke down in the office and told me what he was dealing with as far as the, the traumatic event. And like his wife was in the room with him and his wife had never heard this story. I mean, he had, held on to that for 50 plus years. And so I, I hope that someone hearing this episode who's either in healthcare or not even in healthcare and is, is I don't want someone to wait 50 years to say the shit I seen during COVID-19 sucked, you know? And so I, I hope that we I hope this episode does some good in, in that, in that point. Anyway, we're really good about, about lying to ourselves. We're really good at saying the terrible shit that I went through did not impact me as a father, didn't impact me as a brother or a son or as a healthcare provider. We are really good at saying that shit. And then we're 70 years old and we look back and in our moment of clarity, we say, look at what happened to our life because we didn't get the help when we could. And I've seen it. I treat it every day. Hmm. Yeah. Man, <laughs> this is a deep episode, dude. I mean, it, it, but again, it, it's it it need it needs to be addressed. And I, well, I think we need to have Eric on more. I, I mean, I'm not saying we have to do it like every month. I'm just saying I think regularly. It's cool, Tom. I, I don't to want to come every month either. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Gosh, damn it! Now I'm I gonna have to call somebody that. about this. Just, just oh, the rejection. God. Here we go. <laughs> I just feel like I think regularly. Eric could probably come on and shed some insight on a lot of stuff. I, it's just, he makes me lay down and on a couch to do this interview. <laughs> I just, 
it's hard to reach up to the mic and I don't know. It's just a pain in the ass. So <laughs> no, I think there is a whole lot of mental health that, uh, you know, we have this great resource who is obviously willing to continue to come back on our show for some damn reason. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, that's why I keep asking questions. It's like, Oh, well, you know, while we have him on the show, I want to pick his brand about stuff, but yeah, I do motivational think- interviewing, Ben, I'm getting him to do things. He doesn't want to do. So <laughs> Good job. Good work. Somebody Googled that. <laughs> so, but the editing hey, process is going to be so horrific towards the end. <laughs> now it'll be fine. So, I mean, if there are topics that you know, you, you listener want to have Eric come back on and discuss from a mental health standpoint, reach out to us and tell us, I mean, uh, you know, I'm sure he'll be happy to come back on, uh, begrudgingly and we'll pay for some bush or not. Day yeah. And, uh, yeah go from there so on that note closing up if you're having issues get the help that you need as eric has stated numerous times and i hope everybody has a great week and like eric said you deserve the help if you feel like you need it go out and get it everybody stay safe out there practice swearing just to pass the time See why I am alone. I caught some road rage and I thought of you. And all the many times you say I should have known.